Children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. If you'd open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, we'll be covering uh, three verses there in that chapter this morning. We're going to read in Matthew 5, starting at verse 13. I too share Melissa's joy uh, and and what she said about the, uh, the labor and, and effort and energy that Heidi uh, put in to making the pillowcase dresses possible. And uh, it was it's very interesting. You, we, many times when we get ready to go, we'll, we'll, we'll take things and we'll pack them into bags and distribute them equally among luggage. And so we arrive over there in Africa and it's, uh, you know, let's put all the dresses in one place. And so they all went to this um, central meeting room that we had, and they were all kind of in a box. And then, you know, they just became part of baggage, really. It wasn't, it wasn't sitting there uh, traveling. I was thinking, oh, you know, this is just a thing. It's, it's like everything else I've got in there. And then to hear the, uh, the reports and see the pictures and see the excitement, and then on Sunday morning to be there and to have all these, these uh, little girls come in and they're all clumped together and standing there and like, you know how little kids are, they're like tripping over one another and, and they're all showing themselves to Melissa and Amanda and we put it together like, look, those are the dresses. Uh, what a blessing. Uh, and, and to think that the Lord put it in your heart months before um, to, to bless them. What a joy. So we are thankful for you. The, the Bible says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus is, is speaking, he has finished uh, the Beatitudes in which he is defining the character of the blessed life of the one who will follow him. And now he turns to making two analogies. This is what he says. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we have spent time studying the words of Jesus, and we have just read some of them. It's very easy to think about the way that we use these analogies, that, that someone will say, that person, that's a, that's a good person, they're the salt of the earth. We can hear your words, Lord, and they can become so familiar in such a way that we lose sight of their real meaning. And so we pray that, that we would believe and receive your word this morning. When we follow you, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, when you do a work in us and declare us righteous... You place your spirit in us and you begin to accomplish those good works which you have put in our path to do. As Ephesians 2.10 says, these statements which Jesus makes are true of us. And so we pray, Father, that we would see both the empowerment which you give through the spirit. That you have made it so. But also, may we see the responsibility to be what you have created. To bear the fruit which you are producing. And to go and to use it for the purpose, Father, which you have given to us. We pray that you would bless the proclaiming of your word. We pray that, that, that you would clear out the sin which clings so closely, the impurity which causes us to fall away. And Father, we pray that with ears and hearts of faith, we would hear and apply 
your word, that we might glorify you as we seek to honor you and bring glory to you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come through the book of Matthew, Matthew is establishing the identity of the Messiah. He does that in the beginning of the book by uh, subjecting or, or, or uh, performing some legal tests. Jesus comes in the, in the line of David. Uh, he is the adopted son of Joseph. He passes the temptations, and so he is morally qualified to be the Messiah. But, but what he is demonstrating as we move through Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, Jesus is, uh, is, is given the stage. Matthew is, is presenting Jesus as the perfect moral teacher. He is, he is speaking with the authority of a lawgiver, speaking as one greater than Moses and revealing himself as Messiah in the excellency of his teaching. He has made these statements about what it means to be, to be blessed or to be happy, to, to follow the Lord in the character and behavior of our lives. He's laying out the righteous path. And then... He gives these two analogies, two connections, two two ways of of explaining the life and the influence of the Christian, what the Christian is to be, what the follower of Jesus is in the world. And so these two analogies uh, are, are not just pleasant sayings, they're not just statements of, of, of that, that we ought to say, isn't that a nice thing that he said about us? No, the, the image comes with both responsibility and, and blessing. So Jesus lays out two of these analogies for us, and we're to, we're to see them and to, to believe them and to say, when he speaks, He's speaking, not just theoretically, but he's speaking to me. And he, is, and he is telling me, this is who I am. This is who I am to be. This is who his church is to be. And so we hear it and receive it and believe it. First, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the, the salt of the earth. I don't know if you give salt much thought. Um, one of the things that we, uh, we, we, we do when we plan to, to head over to Africa is I, I, try to, um, I try to think of ways of, of making my team's experience easier. And, um, and, and so I've, I've, I've noticed that when they hand out meals on the plane, that generally what they do is, is, is the meals come, it's either vegetarian or uh, an, an option that contains meat. And what they will do is they will give out all the special meals first. So uh, if there's a, uh, and if you fly Emirates, there's a list of like 12 different kinds of meals that you can get. And so uh, there's like Hindu, vegetarian, and then there's halal. All meals are halal on Emirates flights, but there's like, you know, special meals if you follow this Muslim tradition. Or you could get gluten-free, which... If you were traveling, you would have noticed what an enormous problem it was to realize that Keith Meyer ordered the gluten-free meal. And I don't, I don't order them because I'm necessarily gluten-free. I order them because they serve you first, right? And you don't have to, you don't have to wait, you know, you just, you get your meal. And so, and so I just, I think it's so good. And so a couple of people ordered the low-sodium meal. And I just think, like, I, I get it. Like, but a world without salt is kind of, I mean, it's airplane food, first of all. Uh, but a world without, what was, how was your experience, Brian? Was it? It was delicious. It was delicious. Oh, good. Okay, good. So you weren't missing out on anything. Um, one, of, one of the things that uh, my kids watch a lot of, of cooking shows on, uh, on Netflix, and uh, they watch this one show called Cutthroat Kitchen. Has anybody ever seen this, where, where the... The people sabotage each other. Like the one, the one episode we were watching the other day, 
the, uh, the two cooks who were competing against this other cook, they had to wear one apron with two holes in it, and they had to, isn't this horrible? And they had to, the one guy's like, I'm not moving from my station, the girl's like trying to stretch and cook. But, uh, it, and, then, and then they're judged, and none of what's happened to them is taken into consideration. Uh, they're, they're not allowed to say, but I wasn't allowed to use salt or, you know, I, I only, I could use this or I could use that. Uh, I was connected to somebody else. And, 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 and one of the most horrible things that can be said of food is the, the guy will, will taste the food and then he'll, he'll, he'll say it's bland. It needs seasoning. Or they'll say it's too salty. This is like the ultimate criticism of food. Uh, Salt is necessary and good, and if it's available, it, it, can, it can either ruin or transform food. I don't know if you've noticed that. C.S. Lewis says this about salt. He says, suppose there's a person who knows nothing about salt. You give him a pinch to taste, and he experiences a particular strong, sharp taste. Then you tell him that in your country, people use salt in all of their cooking. He might reply, I suppose that all your dishes taste exactly the same, right? Too salty, or, or that, 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 that bite that salt has. This is what Lewis then goes on to say. The taste of, of salt is not so strong that it kills the taste of everything else. In fact, we know that the real effect of salt is exactly the opposite. The right amount, far from killing the taste of egg or tripe or cabbage, I guess this is Lewis's diet here, uh, actually brings out the true flavor. They don't show their real taste until you've added salt. Have you thought about that? The, the effect, it just, it needs a little salt, right? And then you put some salt on there and it's like, now it tastes good. It tastes like what it is supposed to be. What does salt do? Why does Jesus make this analogy? What is, what is, he, what is he sharing with his people here? One, salt is, is connected with purity. James says that the true religion is, yes, to to uh, share and to visit orphans and widows in their distress, but also to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Salt was used to, to preserve and to keep food pure. But mostly, I believe, people overlook the, the purity and preservative nature of salt and think about salt primarily in terms of flavor. And this is what what Christianity does in the world when properly applied. It is, it is sharp, and it brings a purifying, preserving wow factor to the world. People don't even realize that it's there. I, I, it, it, it astounds me that, that when you look throughout history and you look at where the, the force behind our, our cultural obsession with love comes from. The world was a cold, hard place prior to Jesus. People don't realize this. They think that, they think that, that, that people have just been writing songs that, that love is all you need, like Lennon and McCartney wrote in the 60s, and that, that those were, those were trumpeted, trumpeted as, as prime values. This was not the way of the world prior to Christ. Power was what was celebrated. Jesus says that, that power is in love. Think about schools. Compulsory education to teach people to read comes from where in the United States? From the great liberal atheistic minds? No. It comes from, from people who were convinced that unless the population was literate, it could not understand the Bible. And so... Bands of people put together schools to teach children to read so that they could understand the word. Where, do the, the, where does the hospital movement come from? Yeah, there was medical care, but it was available for the rich. Houses for the dying? Places that, that sought to serve and to care come from where? 
They come from, from Christians. The world is different because the truth of the scriptures is that, that, that we ought to love others the way that we would desire to be loved. And the way that we desire to be loved is with the character and the quality of the love of Christ who gives himself that we might be saved. He loves in a way that, that serves. And so, so Jesus is saying here, you who are listening to me back then, you are the salt of the earth. And he's speaking, Matthew includes this here, instructive for believers. You are the salt. And you're to be not the salt of the church, but the salt of the earth, the salt of the world. You're to bloom and to, to, to have your effect wherever you are planted. He moves on, though, because the image, it's not, it's not necessarily to focus exactly on what salt does, but on what he says next. And he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, if you want to uh, read an enormous amount of speculative thinking you should read passages that, that try to get to the meaning of exactly what Jesus is saying here. How does salt lose its taste? How, how, does, that, how does that happen? It's, it's not like Diet Coke, right? If you open uh, a can of Coke and you put it on the counter and you leave it for a couple days, not only is it probably a health risk to drink it, but all the fizz has gone out of it, right? And then it's just, it doesn't quite have the same oomph or bite to it anymore, right? It's, it's lost its, its, its excellence. You throw it away. But salt, you can leave it in the shaker for quite a long time and it's still salty, right? And so, so people have, have put together a number of theories of what Jesus is saying here. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time explaining them. Um, one, one person says old salt, but I, I don't think that's the point here. Uh, somebody talks about the fact that maybe they packed their ovens and they surrounded them with salt because salt had some kind of heat absorption property. I don't know. This doesn't sound like good culinary science to me. And that, and that when that quality faded, they would throw it away. I think this is the, a more likely explanation is that in a world that had no salt refineries, where they were just digging it out of the earth, they were, they were digging it out and leaving it in piles in places that were open to moisture, that were open to uh, weather, that were open to, to all kinds of things that would, that would whittle away the pure stuff that was in the pile. Okay? So you have, you have salt... Today, we have sodium chloride and just so sodium chloride in a container. That's what you buy at the supermarket when you buy salt. But back then, they didn't have the ability to refine it like that. And so you had a bunch of stuff in a pile. And if it got rained on or uh, over time, moisture uh, coming in, in the form of humidity would, would leach away the saltiness of the salt in that pile, and what would be left was just stuff that was not salty. And then what would they do with it? If it could no longer accomplish its purpose, they would throw it away. Because what was there was not actually salt at all. If the salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything. If what you've got is a, a pile of just junk and you put that on your food, it doesn't enhance the flavor at all. It brings no preservative quality to, to whatever you're, 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 you're cooking. It, it does not enhance the flavor. It does not keep pure. And so the salt needed to be cared for and preserved. What is Jesus saying here? He's pointing out the fact that, that, that the salt must remain pure if it will hold on to its purpose. Not having purpose, not defending purpose, invites disaster. I've got a, uh, a, a screwdriver that my father gave me. He, he worked for, uh, for IBM for years, and uh, they would send him these toolkits, 
and they would say, take your old toolkit, get rid of it. This is the new toolkit because this is everything that you're going to need to work on the machines that we have. And so I got all these tools and this tiny little screwdriver, little handle, you know, uh, little, little um, you know, flathead bit on there. It says, it's printed right on the side, not a chisel or a pry bar. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Tool abuse abounds, right? Have you got any, um, any butter knives in your house that are cracked at the tip because you've tried to, like, use it to tighten a switch plate or to unscrew something, right? It's not meant for that purpose, and you break it when you use it that way. When the church, when the people of Jesus abandon their distinctiveness, when they say, you know what, we're, we're, we're not going to be focused on, on purity. We're not going to focus on what we do that enhances what, what God has put in the world for us to, to be part of. And we say, we, we want to be like the culture. We, we, wanna, we want to, to never be looked at and thought of as odd or strange or different. We never want to suffer. We never, we never want to struggle. When, when that is taken away, then we are inviting disaster. When we fail to remember our purpose, we cannot fulfill it. John said as he began this morning that... We stand on certain truths. The gospel begins with the uncomfortable truth that we must say to people, you are alienated from God. This is not a popular message, but it is necessary. Somebody must understand that they are at great risk of separation from God if they are going to understand how to achieve uh, a renewed relationship with him. If somebody doesn't know that they are lost, how can they be saved? If somebody doesn't realize that they are a sinner... How do they understand that they need someone to handle their sin for them? If they don't cry out, woe is me, who will save me, as Paul did, how will they rejoice with great thanks when they hear that Jesus was perfect and that he substituted himself on the cross for anyone who would believe in him? If the church... Let's go of the word of God. If it lets go of its Jesusness, and it focuses instead on telling people to be good and on telling society to, to be better and on judging and clutching at our pearls and wagging our tongues instead of remembering that we were lost in darkness once too and that someone shared and cared and encouraged and rebuked then we are inviting disaster. As we were getting ready to leave Belize in 2013, um, the, uh, the local residents were telling us that they had found these huge burial mounds from the, uh, the Aztec people or uh, Maya, Mayan people, I can't remember which, who lived there. And... Um, in order to save money, what the president of Belize had done was he had sent uh, backhoes and trucks to begin to tear these monuments down. They began to, to, to pull the dirt off of the sides of these big burial mounds and to load them into trucks. And they're very distinctive, like tan, yellowy, clay-type color. And, uh, and what they were doing is they were taking that dirt and they were spreading it on the roads and using that instead of, of buying in, uh, bringing in dirt or, or getting pavement or asphalt or something to build their roads. They were, they were taking the mounds and, and spreading them. As we took off from the plane uh, and then the plane pulled up the ground, and you looked down and all the roads were that color. It was, it was kind of stark. What, what had happened was the president had, had lost the sense that this was a valuable thing worth preserving and had spread it out as road dust. In the same way, if, if the people of Jesus do not hold on to what makes them distinct and different in the world and instead compromise and seek to be just like the world, we lose our value and contribute nothing to the world. The natural 
course of sinful, fallen human beings is toward easiness. And for the church, that is decay. The way of the Spirit, which is supernatural, is towards life. But it, it is a struggle, and it will involve suffering, and it also in, it, it generally involves a clash of, uh, of, of values with the world. We need to be very, very careful that we do not give up what is distinct about us. If the word takes a stand, if the word defines the issue for us, if the word says this is the way that God would have us live, this is what God calls us to, this is God's standard, this is God's way, then as a church, we must say that will be our way as well. And so often, what we're, what we're called to focus on as our distinctives aren't the things that Christians love to fight about. Aren't the things that, that, that Christians uh, uh, spend so much time discussing and debating. They're the moral issues of the day that, that, just, that, that seem to get lost because the cultural weight and the cultural inertia is so behind them. That, that we think things like, like sexual purity in terms of what we watch and what we consume in terms of media. We just, everybody's posting stuff on Facebook or, or everybody's saying you got to watch this show on Netflix or people are saying go and see this movie. Yeah, it's got some stuff in it that you shouldn't see, but the rest of it's really good. Oh, we need to say what would the Lord have me do? Will there be... Will there be a loss? Yes, you will feel distinct and different. But we're called to live in a way that that retains our saltiness. And so we need with great care to make decisions and say, "Does does this honor the way which Jesus has laid out for me? That's the first analogy. You are the salt of the earth. It's a, it's a negative analogy because, because salt fights off decay. Salt uh, uh, brings and enhances something which would be boring and bland without it. The second analogy is a very positive one. And when I say, when I say negative, I don't mean negative like bad or depressing. It's just it is what it is. Uh, when I say that this is, this is positive, this is here where, where um, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let, me, let me just talk about what Jesus says here. He says, you, to his people, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Notice he doesn't say you are the light of the church. He says you are the light of the world. The, the analogies here are functioning with reference not to the community and the people of God, but with the people of the earth, the people of the world. And so, so this is the relationship of God's people to those who are not God's people. John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus makes this analogy of himself. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. What does light mean? Do? What is its purpose and its function? Light is often used as a guide. We use light routinely as we seek to illuminate paths, right? Think about how important light is when you're driving. If a light goes out on your car and you're driving on a dark road, right? It, it gets you kind of like, I can't see what's coming, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure where I'm heading. Uh, you know, uh, if, if you, have you ever driven past a car that doesn't have its lights on that you, you could not see coming far off and you're like, whoa, you know, that, that's scary. The, the light that they, that they have on their car is, is meant to be a warning and to signal that they're coming. Think about the use of, of, of siren lights, right? You see them coming far off and that means like I better pull off to the side of the road because this person might do something erratic, uh, they might do something that, that's considered breaking the rules, right? The cop car flips on its lights and you hear the siren and suddenly they're driving through a red light. You're not allowed to do that. 
You don't have lights on your car that, that empower you to do that. You, know, you don't have the legal authority to do it. Lights are a guide. They say, they say this is the path. You can, you can see the path. And they also are, are meant to provide a warning. But a, a, a much more simple function of light is simply that it is meant to be seen. Uh, a number of years ago, it's probably seven years ago, we had, we had just moved down here and I was still uh, doing some weddings for people in New Jersey that, uh, that were a part of my ministry up there. And uh, my friend Karen and her fiancé Steve were driving down and they were coming down Nanakook Road and I was giving them uh, guidance. I couldn't say that there's a right aid on the corner because there wasn't at that point. And there, there was a bunch of stuff that just wasn't there then. There's was no Dunkin' Donuts. You know, there was no, um, I don't think Dairy Queen was there yet. There's, there's no landmarks. And so I said, look, you're going to drive down this road. You'll see a, uh, a supermarket off to your left. Keep on driving and keep driving past. You will see Jesus, right? That's what I said. <laughs> and, uh, and if you know Nanakook Road, there is this faithful, wonderful person. I've never met them, but there's this farm, and on the side of a shed are, is the word Jesus illuminated in like Christmas lights. And so she's, she's driving down the road. I'm on the phone with her, and, and I'm like, just keep going. And she's like, I don't know where we are. You know, like, this road is really long. And I'm like, keep going, keep going. All of a sudden, she starts, she's like shouting, screaming into her phone, I see Jesus. I see Jesus. Light is meant to be seen. Light is, light is meant to point the way and to be a guide. And so the church, the people of God are in the world, not just to be negative all the time and to say, oh, stop doing that. Don't, don't do that. You're wrong. Right? And that, that could be our purpose or our perception if we are merely focused on the salty function of the church. But the church is meant to shine a light, and it's a very specific light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And Jesus tells his people, you are the light of the world. He tells his followers, as the Father has sent me, so I sent you. So I send you into the world. And, and, and we have ministry tasks and things that we're to do to share and to love and to care. But we need to understand first and foremost that, that the Father, the Son, the Spirit are in us and working through us. Light is our identity as believers. Light and focusing on the fact that Jesus is the light and that we are indwelled by him and his spirit and that his light is coming through us, we understand then the, the source of our power and our strength. Jesus becomes our security and our identity. It's not just what I do. It's not my function to, 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 to be light in terms of my actions so much as it must first be that I know who I am in Christ. That I know that where my, my, my strength comes from Him. That I, that I know that, that I am loved. And that I am called to live a particular way within God's amazing, abundant grace. And then I can shift and focus on what I do. What I am called to do. What my vocation is. What my activity ought to be. And our activity is that, that we are to illuminate the path and to be seen by others that they might see Jesus, that they might see God. He goes on to say this. Jesus says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, right? This is, it, is, it has never happened to me when I've so, told somebody, like you're, you're driving and it's dark and you'll see Jesus. They, they never say, like, I, I couldn't see it. Because light's function is to be seen. And those, those folks, they don't go out and take the lights down and they don't move the shed. 
Because that would be difficult. It would be a pain. A city set on a hill with its lights and its, its houses all illuminated at night so that people can see what they're doing. Can't, do they, you can't just hide it. It's, it's there in the location and it can't be moved. Jesus is saying because its function is to be where it is. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. Have you thought about that? We, we, we mostly probably think in terms of electric light bulbs, right? And, and if, if, if we're thinking in terms of like the Walmart category and not the Hobby Lobby category, baskets are made out of plastic, right? You know? No, no, think, think uh, a, a small lamp filled with oil with a wick. Think fire. And then think wicker, right? Or reeds. And what happens if you, if you put a lamp out and you put a basket over it, right? You, you are working at cross purposes with, with your lamp. It's not just that the lamp is going to, the light is going to be obscured. It's that it's, you're going to destroy this basket, right? You just don't do that. You don't, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket or under a bed. I mean, the risk to the house and to the people in it, think about it. This is, this is inviting disaster. No, you put it on a stand. You put it in a, in a particular place where it can, it can shed light and provide its purpose throughout the room. Or in the place where it has been put. You put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. I have a, uh, a bag of flashlights. We go, we go to uh, this camp up in uh, New York. And uh, as the kids go out and they go and they do their different things, you know, one goes and plays basketball, there's like a rock climbing wall, and there's, a, um, there's just a bunch of different places they'll go and they'll play ultimate frisbee at night. And so I have a flashlight for each kid. Right. And uh, so when I when I go over to Zambia, I'm a bit of an overpacker. You know, I usually bring two or three flashlights and I've got my my nice red mag light. And then I've got this other little tiny red, you know, LED light. And then I've got one that uh, that somebody gave me. It's like a, a real tree camo light. And I don't really like that one because camo is kind of like an, a hunter thing. and I'm not much of a hunter. And so I'm not I'm not really fond of that one. But you know what? I'm in my room. And all of a sudden, there's this click, and the solar power goes out, and it's completely and utterly dark. You know, you do, like, the flip the switch thing. Maybe if I just keep flipping the switch, the lights will come on. And so I went where I thought the flashlights were, and I grabbed my favorite flashlight, and I, I, I turned, the, turned the handle, and, and the light didn't come on. Because you can't store that stuff long-term with the batteries in, because then the batteries corrode, and then the light doesn't work. You know, so take all the batteries out. No light here. That was my favorite one, right? Then I get my second favorite one, and I click, click, click the button on that, and the light doesn't come on. But the camo one, I guess I'd left the batteries in it. That's my least favorite, right? So I, I didn't really care what happened. And so the batteries that were in it were still good, and suddenly the light came on, right? It didn't matter how much I liked the other ones. This one was performing its function, and so it had great value. Think about the fact that the church is called to be light. We're called to illuminate the truth and not just the truth about goodness or about rightness, but the truth about God's will and God's way for us as it is revealed in Jesus. Not just truth, but truth and grace. Love to those who have gotten so far off the path that now they need light to say, here's the way back. Grace and mercy that says you have stumbled in darkness ignorantly and you don't know how to live because this is the way that you were raised or, or here is how, how people have hurt you or here is how you have so afflicted yourself that you, you, you have a difficult time understanding the truth or, or here's how you've, you've reasoned in yourself to the point where you can't even see that there is a God and the light is there to say, hey, here's the path to get you from where you are to where you need to be in fellowship with the Lord again. The church is called to be that kind of light, like a lighthouse that says, here's the way, 
Here's the shore to help someone orient themselves and guide themselves back as they follow the path. This is what Jesus goes on to say. He says the lamp is, is not to be hidden under a basket or on a stand. It's, it's, it's or put under a basket. It's given to be put on a stand so that it can give light to all who are in the house. And then he makes another analogy. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Let your light shine before others. It's interesting the way he develops this. He says, first, so that they may see your good works. Your good works. You're called as a Christian. Paul says that we are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus, which he prepared beforehand. There are, there are works which God has prepared uniquely for you, that if you do not accomplish them, they will not be accomplished. God created and designed you to accomplish specific purpose in your life. And I don't know what it is, and you'll know what it is as it unfolds in front of you. They are your good works. But you are not the end goal and purpose of those good works. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Paul tells Timothy that the rich people who are in his congregation ought not to take strength or pleasure or security in their riches, but instead they ought to enhance their financial portfolio with something else other than just funds. First Timothy 6.18, he says that you're to instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The best way to be rich is to be rich in good works, rich in good deeds, to be living out in the day-to-day the goodness and the gracious character of God. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul is is consistent on this teaching, that, that we're to be rich in good works, that we're not to grow weary of doing good, that we're to do good to everyone. But there's a purpose behind it, and it's not just that we enhance our reputation as being a good person. Or that when someone says, thanks, that really made my day, you're like, ah, just, you know, living out of my own character, you know, just, I did that because I'm an exceptional human being, you know? No, there's, a, there's an end goal behind all of the good works that we discover in our path, which God has placed in our path as we walk in them. And that's that we would turn the attention away from ourselves, I think one of the most, well, okay. So I open the, um, there's a drawer in our kitchen that has all of the wraps in it. Not like turkey bacon ranch wrap, you know, not, not that kind of wrap. But like uh, there's, there's wax paper, which I suppose is a kind of a wrap. And then there is aluminum foil, which I think is the proudest of all of the wraps. Um, you know, you put aluminum foil on a bowl and it, it becomes a mystery. What, what is in there? What is that stuff, you know? And, and in our house, uh, if, you, if you put aluminum foil on something, nobody looks in there. Uh, when, when, when Nancy grows intolerant of the bowl that's there with the, with the foil on it, she will open it and then say, you need to throw that out because it's usually got a beard at that point. That doesn't happen a whole lot. Because we don't use the, the proud wrap. We use the humble wrap, right? You, the, the transparent, clear wrap exists to to accomplish its function, but it desires to be invisible. It desires to be looked through, right? That's its function and its purpose. You have a bowl. That bowl is full of leftover rice. When the fridge doors are opened, someone should be able to look and to see right through the wrap and into what's in that bowl and not have to wonder. 
And that is how we are to be as we do good works as Christians. Not to embrace some kind of false, aw, shucks, it was nothing kind of humility. But when, when we do good works, when we serve others or love others as a church or as individuals, we say that we serve and we love because we have been well served by God. We love because He loved us. Why, why do you do this? We're just we're trying to show the love of God in a practical way. Why, why are you being generous with me in this way? Well, I'm doing that because someone was generous with me and we share. We tell someone we're behaving this way because we're imitating our Father who is in heaven. The purpose of our good works is not to promote ourselves, but that they might see our Father in heaven and glorify Him. There's a, a phrase in one of John Stott's commentaries that I don't, I don't know that I quite love it. I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to say it another way, the way that I prefer it. But, but this one author, not Stott, Stott's quoting somebody. He says, the Christian never thinks of what he has done, but what God has enabled him to do. And so, so he's, he's, he's removing the reference from himself. Oh, you were so kind to do that. Well... The Lord has been kind to me, and he's, and he's put me in a place where I'm, able, where I'm able to do this for you. God's blessed me, and so I want to bless you, that sort of thing, where we're drawing the attention off of ourselves. I think a better way, a way that I would like to say it is, is to say that the Christian learns not to glory in what he has done. He learns not to glory in what he's done, but in what God has enabled him to do. I seek to constantly take the attention off of myself. I realize that, that, that when I am living in humble dependence on the Lord, that, that He is working through me, and that, and that when I am focused on myself and on my abilities and what I'm going to get out of it, then I am, I am walking according to the flesh and I am sowing to corruption. And what we need to do is to remember our identity, that God has made us light, that God has made us salt, and salt must be salty, and light must be shiny, or we are frustrating the purpose for which we have been created. A few thoughts as we close down. One is this. As Christians, we need to seek a balance and make sure that we are living out our identity. I've said this a number of times. You need to make sure that in your life you're striking a balance and you're letting your salt be salty and your light shine. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. This means that if you work in an office environment, you should not be seen as the condemning, judging one, right? If you, if you look out at, at the sitcoms that are on television and the Christians who are in those sitcoms, you never want to be that guy, right? In the sitcoms, you know what they never do? They never talk about Jesus and they are never humble. The Christians are always proud and arrogant and judgy. Now, as as we are in a work environment, as we interact with others, ought we to have high moral standards? Yes. But what we do is we, we share those standards and we live our life and we use the influence that we have to say, this is the way our team is going to do it. This is what's right. This is what's ethical. This is what's good. And then when, when, when we confront others or others are, are shamed or, or they feel judged by us, we say, look, you know, I, I by no means am confessing that I am perfect. But God's been kind to me and he's called me to live in this way. And we share. We don't ever act like we've got it all figured out and all perfect and all together. And we always, you know, score 100% on every single test because we know that we fail. And when we're humble, and others say to us, I want to know more about that. We say, okay, let me share with you. And we share, we share, we share. We are not the light unless Jesus is our light. There's a difference 
Here's the second thing, between the world and the church. And so we always need to remember that we are different. And because we are different, we are to be different. And so if we're trying to solve the equation of of how we reach more people for Christ, and that involves moral compromise or minimizing of the standards or removing Jesus from the program, and that will make it easier, we need to say, no, we're not going to do that. We've, We've been given boundaries by God with which we're to function within. We need to make sure that we remember that we're called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And so that means that we can't run and hide from the world. We watch the news and we see the world changing. God is still in control no matter what happens. You may have a a preferred future outcome for this coming election. You know, maybe you're going to vote for for this one or for that one, and you want this one or that one to win, and for, you know, the guy or the gal that you're pulling for to not win would be catastrophe. You know what? If catastrophe strikes or if victory strikes, God is still in control. And you know what? Neither one of those people embodies, in my mind, the worldview in the way of Jesus anyway. Those might be fighting words. You may, you may want to say, but one of them embodies it more. We're, we're, we're called to, to realize that there will always be a distinction between the world and the church. And that, and that the church, when it becomes the best friend of the world, that is often where compromise and disaster begins. And so, as we close, we, just, we, we need to remember and to focus on the fact that we're to live our lives according to God's standards. A serious call to dependence and holiness is involved when we seek to live out our identity We ourselves will be blessed when we say, I take it upon myself. Uh, I've been called by Jesus. I'm going to, to live out my identity as being salt and light in the world. We will be blessed. That's true. The world will be best served. Think about it. This is what Jesus did. He loved and served a world that for the most part still overwhelmingly rejects him. But for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that have been opened By God's power, God will be glorified. And that is the point. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity, Lord. I I thank you that you don't say, I'm going to save the world and you sit on the sidelines. Instead, when you work, you do it through people. And so you've called your people to be bearers of fruit, ministers of reconciliation, branches connected to the vine salt and light. We pray that we would never lose our sense of dependence. We pray that we would never forget that Jesus is the message and that we are merely the messengers. But Father, knowing that, may we not shy away from being salty in the world and saying that is not right. Or saying, this is the difference that Jesus makes and here is how he makes it better. Wonderful. But may we also remember that our goal is to illuminate the path and to show people this is how you come back to relationship with God. This is how you come into right standing with him. This is the good news, that he is the good news and he is gracious and kind and loving. And may we seek a humble balance between the two, Lord, and may we be salt and light. We pray this, trusting that you will teach us as we take each step along the way, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.